Good morning. Good morning. We come to this time together. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for an opportunity to be in your word, an opportunity to be with you. And thank you for how you've led and guided us through these many months as we have journeyed with you through the New Testament. Father, would you guide us as we talk about what you have given to the church and help us to get have understanding in Jesus' name. So where we left off last time was we did a brief overview of the book of Revelation. And somewhere I have handouts for today. And we looked at different ways that the book has been handled throughout history, recognizing that Christians have not always seen it the same way. Uh, we looked at the four views, the preterist view, which puts a lot of the events in the first century. The historicist view, which tries to put together the timeline from the ascension of Christ to the return of Christ to try to make it fit human history. You get a little bit of a rubber nose in that case because you have to decide what your starting point is, your ending point is, and what events you want to emphasize. Then you have the idealist view, which says that it's really just an ongoing lesson of endurance uh, in the midst of persecution for God's people, uh, that all throughout the church there are antichrists, there are rebels against um, God's <clears throat> plan, against God's people. And then you have the futurist view, where there's various interpretations about what point in the book of Revelation do we jump out of the first century and go to a uh, time in the future. Um, as I mentioned last time, each of these views has been taught at different times of church history by different leaders in church history. So we need to at least give them a respectful hearing even if we end up not believing what they, what they believe. They had their reasons. Maybe let's take that part of truth that's in that view uh, and then move on to maybe one that we find more amenable. So really... <laughs> <laughs> if it was that clear, the church would have always been in agreement, right? Yeah. We would have something like the Apostles' Creed that affirms how we understand the book of the Revelation. The creeds just say Jesus Christ will come again in glory and great power, and his kingdom will have no end. Or he will judge the living and the dead. All of that would say, yeah, and whoever he does, he does. But what I want to look at today is really the first three chapters, and really not even in great detail, but more in summary form. At what are typically referred to as the seven letters to the seven churches. Well, it's the last page of your regular notes. Okay? And keeping in mind that the churches in that time were facing real historical situations, real challenges, real difficulties, they become useful then for instructing God's people really throughout time. Uh, no matter how we understand what their intent was going forward, we can learn from the message of each of these seven churches. I've got to find my place in my notes here. Okay. So, John, as he's on the island of Patmos, as he looks across the, the ocean, across to where he was staying, he can see Asia Minor, he can see the seven churches. He's concerned about their spiritual growth. Um, and God guided him to record messages to each of these seven churches that he could see. Um, these were real churches in real space and time in the first century. They had a real historical background. 
I want us to begin by looking at Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. <clears throat> so, John has had this amazing image of Jesus Christ. He can't even fully explain what he sees. But when he says, But when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. It is the risen Christ giving testimony to his victory. And when we look just verses before that, so we know that this is Christ, the verses before it, starting in verse 12, it says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and I'm turning, and now he gives a series of images of what he sees. I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. As these letters are written, John is going to use these different images and put them in letters. And that becomes part of the letters that he writes. So as you look at your chart, in the first column we have uh, who is Christ. And it, and it begins then with the letter. And it, it picks up one of those images that is in chapter 1. So for example... To the letter of the church of Ephesus, to him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Well, we've just seen the seven golden lampstands. We've just seen the one who holds in his hand. So, so John is trying to emphasize a particular attribute of Christ. And so, in each of the letters, then, there is a mention of an attribute of Christ. And it's nice that we can have all the letters because we see the fullness of Christ, at least as it's given here, in His glory, in His power, who He is. And the character of Christ that is referred to directly addresses the situation of that church. Okay? So... You could, this chart I, I would recommend for you just to take some time to look at chapters 1, 2, and 3 of the book of Revelation. Look at this chart. Just read through what, what you see here and be encouraged. You know, there's lessons we can draw from each of the letters to these seven churches. Um, and that has been something that Christians have always thought. So, I find that very helpful. So in a general sense, then, not every one of these characteristics is necessarily in every letter. So it starts out with some type of attribute of Christ. And then there's commendation where Christ praises the church. Well, he doesn't praise all seven churches. Okay? There's at least two that he doesn't praise, it seems. Um, or at least his praise is couched in challenge as well. Then you have condemnation, where, uh oh, here's what you've done wrong. And again, he doesn't condemn every church. So there's some churches that have remained faithful more so than others, but there's some that are dealing with a certain challenge. And then, as a result of the problem they are facing, and in light of that attribute of Christ, there's a call to action. So, counsel, what do they do? 
uh, and we'll, we can look at that. And then Christ is saying, okay, if you don't do this, if you don't do this, there will be consequences. Okay? And then we look at what some of those are. And then there's the covenant where Christ affirms who he is, what the rewards will be, what the blessings will be. And so these letters that are just full of rich theology of who Christ is, and of what he does, and how he interacts with these individual churches. So it helps to keep in mind that Christ is the head of the church. Christ has said, I will build my church. Christ has promised to be with his church. Christ promised to send out the Holy Spirit upon the church. Christ promised to uh, never leave or forsake the church. And so we have those promises that we can hang on to. But with all of that, he also has the call then to our obedience, to our repentance, to our ongoing faithfulness, to our ongoing service. Because not every church that has gone into existence has remained in existence. 2,000 years of church history tell us otherwise. And in my travels, I've had the privilege of visiting two of these churches. The ruins of two churches. But at one time, were vibrant churches, and now we're just stones and bones. Okay? A living, vibrant reminder that Christ is going to build His church. But it has to be His church, of which He must be the head, of which His teaching must be before the forefront of who... Of who and he must be the recipient of the glory and the service of that church. We saw this a lot in Jordan. My first visit to Jordan in May of 1999. I went there alone to see, is this a place that I could serve, a place to raise my family? And I went to a city called Jerash, which is one of the ten cities in the New Testament, the Decapolis, the ten cities. Okay? And we, we saw the ruins of these different churches. And they're still excavating the old city. And so at one point, my guide said, well, actually, you're standing. Because I looked down and I said, what is this? He said, you're standing on the wall of an ancient church. Now, that church hadn't been excavated yet. So it was like I was standing on the ground that you could start to see where the, 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 the remains were. And as I was standing there, the thought just came to my mind, what will be of my church in 100 years? And I'm sure the people that were going to this church thought that their church would remain. There were baptisms in that church. There were marriages in that church. The gospel was preached in that church. There was faithfulness in that church. And then I'm walking on the walls. Just so, you know. That's part of what's going on behind the letters to these seven churches. Christ is saying, don't forget. It's still all about me. Okay? Um, even in the United States today, for every evangelical church that opens its doors, three close. And that rate has accelerated during COVID. Is that three EFCs closed? No, churches. I think in the free church it's pretty similar as well. Part of that has to do with population shifts, uh, but part of it also has to do with lagging fidelity to the truth of God's word. Okay. I have a question. How, how big were these churches? Were they? Do I, I mean I picture small churches? Uh, so some of the ruins, <laughs> it's hard to, without pictures, it's hard to describe. Because, uh, just generally, uh, maybe as big as this room, some of them. 
They have half the size, some of them. And the Romans were clever. They tried to restrict the growth of the church. And so in some, in, at some phases in the first three centuries, in that particular area of generation, even not men, they would say you can only have one baptism a day in a church, or two, or whatever. And so what they did was they would build a series of small churches, one after the other. And so if we had six baptisms today, we would just do one in this little church, and we'd go to this one, so that we're keeping within the letter of the law. Right? Okay. We're performing one baptism within each church. Um, but they're various sizes. Some of them, uh, a few hundred for each, I would guess, is what you could have fit in each one of them. Usually the, uh, the baptistry was prominent, which I find interesting. So the baptistry, where they performed the baptisms, or the, the place where the sermons would be preached, were prominent. Um, it was only later on in church history where the altar began to move forward, and that has to do with the development of Roman Catholic theology and the importance of the Eucharist, um, where the uh, reformers brought it back to the primacy of the word, which you word. Anyway, be that as it may, most of them end with the charge, then he who has an ear, let him hear. So then we have these seven churches, and... What can we learn about these seven churches? What are some things that you've... Have you studied the seven churches? I know you have. So, can you think of a sermon you remember hearing about one of the churches and what, what you would have learned uh, from that sermon on that particular church? Laodicea is all... Laodicea, okay. And the, and the, the malaise of losing everything of truth is... Uh, the laziness, the worldliness, the fleshliness, the carnality, the attraction to the things of this world. That's always a battle, always a struggle, right? So, let me just do a quick summary through all of them, and then we'll just call it a day. And Carol will be contacting people who um, want to have our celebration on the 10th, and then yeah. setting everything up. I know there are several families not with us today. We know some of them are, but next week will be 4th of July weekend. A lot of people have travel plans, and people will be here, won't be here. So two weeks from today is what we'll plan on doing. Did we decide on the time? Yeah, 11.30. It's on the paper. 11.30. Okay. What's our celebration? What do we celebrate? Our class. This time we just had fun going through the New Testament together over the last, was a year, year plus? And just have a time of celebration. And I will uh, not have a class the rest of July. And we may start up with other classes starting in mid-August. So we'll just take a few weeks off during the, the doldrums of the summer months. And I'll hang around. I've, I've thought of uh, a couple of things I could do during this time on Sunday morning. And maybe I'll just sit in the chair in the foyer and say, you know, stump the pastor or something. And just try to just have interaction with people during that time. Um, whatever. Uh, but we won't have a formal Sunday school class until we meet again in mid-August, probably. So, the pastor? Hmm? The pastor? So. Oh, okay. As opposed to, like, dumb the pastor. We get a dumb tank. We get a dumb tank. He's in as a fundraiser for the youth, right? If Brian could take a pie in the face, then I guess I should. Well, let's look at the church in Ephesus. So that's the first one we come across. And we see in the chart to the one uh, who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven lampstands. Ephesus was an important city in Asia Minor. It was so devoted to Rome that Ephesus was given the privilege of self-government. 
which was not allowed for a lot of cities. It was allowed to kind of go along its, its own path because it showed that it was faithful to Rome. It sat, I don't think I have a slide. Uh, it was along major trade routes. It was a commercial city. It was a seaport. Actually, today, when you go to the old ruins of the Church of Ephesus, it's far inland. You know, because over time it's silt and, the, uh, and the, the canals filled in, so they have to keep building a new one. Uh, but it was the, the seaport was shallow over time; it had to be dug out. Finally, they just kept moving. It was a religious city. Cults, temples, goddesses, gods all over the place. Um, it was famous for the temple of Diana or Artemis. Remember Acts 19, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Uh, she was the main goddess, but by no means the only one. And it was a huge temple. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Um, Diana, also referred to as Artemis, was the one who protected the city. That's what they saw as their protected goddess. And so, what does Jesus say? Well, it says the church in Ephesus was strong and te testing all the various teachers. Keep in mind, remember we talked about the trade routes, and we had teachers, speakers that would go along the trade routes and bring their messages from city to city. And that's what all the, the apostles did. They took advantage of that. Well, Ephesus would have these teachers coming through as well. And the church in Ephesus was a doctrinally sound church. They had their P's and Q's in order. They knew their statements of faith. They knew their creeds. They knew their catechism. Um, they were committed to exposing error. The problem was they became so zealous in giving theological truth they had lost their first love, which was not theological truth, but the one to whom the theological truth points. Okay? Um, they had zeal without knowledge. Well, they had knowledge without zeal. That's probably a better way of saying it. Jesus rebukes them and says, I need to be the center of all that you do. So he calls on his church to what? Repent. Um, don't forget what's really true. Repent of your cold attitudes towards others. Repent of turning away from the Lord as your first love. So I'm, I'm a doctrine guy. You know that. I love sound theology. I love good doctrine. I love discerning truth from error. I did many years in apologetics and many years of preaching the gospel among Muslims um, and, and identifying false teachers. But I need to recognize that my love for truth must not supersede my love for Christ, who is the truth. I need to keep my heart warm towards the things of Christ. So yes, yes, I want to stand on truth, but not at the expense of loving Christ, first, foremost, and always. Yeah. Don't we see, I mean, the vast majority of churches in this country doing that? Uh, no. No? No. I would not say this is the besetting sin of most American churches. They don't have an overriding love for truth. No, no. I, I don't think that they're focusing on our first love. Oh, okay. Uh, well, but there, but it might be something else besides just a passion for doctrinal truth. It might be the approval of man. It might be the desire right. for entertainment. Not it might be prosperity. It might be other things. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, and, and keep in mind that this was a church that was founded just a few decades before. It did not take long for them to fall into cold hardness. So he says, if you do not repent, God will remove the lampstand. Well, I was at the ruins. At some point, the lampstand was removed. The light was taken out. They did not repent. They did not return to being faithful to God and loving the Lord above everything else. So, for, don't 
forsake your first love. Love Christ above all else. And he writes to the church in Smyrna, and then he uses another title. Okay? Today it's known as the city of Izmir. And that was the second one that I did. I've been to Izmir and I've been to Ephesus. Izmir or Smyrna was the place, birthplace of Homer. You may have heard that name if you studied any Greek literature. Okay? It had a great temple to the god of Zeus and to Sebel, another Roman goddess. It built a temple to the emperor Tiberius. It became a center of imperial worship. Remember that temptation to worship the emperor. He's pinching off a bit of incense and saying, Kaiser Curios, Caesar's Lord. The New York Church said, we can't do that. Jesus Curios. Okay. There were, <laughs> there were Jews that opposed the church. There was persecution in Smyrna. Um, the hostility towards the church was high. And, and Polycarp wrote a letter to this church and was associated somehow with this region when he was brought off to be martyred for his faith. Um, but there were some in the church, and we can read it, that remained faithful to the Lord. Now, I wish I could tell you exactly when it says, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. I don't know exactly what that's referring to, sort of exactly what's happening in the first century. Um, but, the, but he said, they're coming to get you, so be faithful. Okay? Um, but he says, I'm the one who is conquered. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Okay? So... This is a church that Jesus doesn't rebuke. He says, you're under heavy pressure. You're being persecuted. Stand firm. I don't have a rebuke for you. I have, a, I have an encouragement for you. Death can't hurt you. And if we have that attitude as believers, that ultimately death can't hurt us, we can endure persecution. Okay? Well, one of the things we learned from the book of Revelation is there are saints that he says they did not love their lives so much that they did not. They were not willing to face death. We live this long, eternity is forever. Okay? I think it was Tertullian that said they, they can't really hurt, they can kill us, but they can't really hurt us. That would reflect what is here. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. You will not be in hell. You will not be separated from God forever. You will be firmly in him. Okay? We get to the church of Pergamum. Pergamum. Hmm. Yeah, I'm wondering why. Oh, there, Pergamos. Ah, I was looking down. So it was not it was not as a big city as Smyrna or Ephesus, but it did have an important religious center. Here, people openly practice emperor worship. Zeus and Asclepius, the god of the serpent, you know, the serpent, and that's sometimes on the outside of pharmacies that really used to be. They were the gods that were prominent there. It had a high it was up on top, on a hill. And they thought they had natural protection where they had. And they put their altars there, their temples there. And what is it called? It became known as the throne of Satan. Wow. I mean, look at it. It says, where Satan dwells. In verse 13. Isn't that a bit terrifying? <laughs> Imagine having an apostle say, ah, you're not a church. You're the place where Satan dwells. Man, you might want to do some house cleaning, right? You might want to, you might want to deal with it, okay? So here's the one. Jesus has the sharp two-edged sword. What's the two-edged sword? Judgment. 
over life, power over death. And what does he say? He says, be true to faith even when death is the result. He says, don't compromise. Is that the problem? There are some who hold to the teaching of the land, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block for the sons of Israel. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. False teachers are in the church. False doctrines are in the church. Do we know exactly what the Nicolaitans believe? I've seen several theories. I'm not sure I can speak to that of any authority. That's, that's what I read now. Um, but what it says here. To the one, verse uh, 17, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Who is, Jesus says who he will give the hidden manna. It's a hidden man. It's hidden in the, um, the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> Is that what that means? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but we know there's some in there. <laughs> I wonder if we don't have a reference here to the Messianic Bay. Yeah, I'm just thinking, isn't this where a lot of collision happens between the literal and the summit? Yeah. Yeah. Is it actually? Symbolic, I think, is a better. Yeah. Yeah. It, is it a reference to the Messianic banquet? I don't know. Jesus is the true manna. Uh, there's several possibilities of what the white stone could be. Some say it means acquittal from their guilt. So in other words, when there were juries and you were given the white side of the stone, that meant you were, you were not guilty. In other places, a white stone was required to be in a special banquet and those important public gatherings. So this white stone would be symbolic of the invitation to the kingdom of God. Like a, like a ticket? Kind of like a ticket. That means that you are washed, that you are white, you have the white stone, not the brown stone or the red stone or whatever you need the white. Whatever it is, Jesus is saying, I'm the key. I'm the, the one you should be coming to. Um, if you don't come, if you don't repent, he said, I'm going to come with the sword. We don't want the sword, right? Um, they're given a new name. They're given a white stone. They're given a new manna. I think the early church knew exactly what this meant, all of these things. But we kind of, we wrestled with understanding what all it means. But it sounds really good. We want to have a new name. We're in cross. We want to be at the Messianic banquet, the new Jesus is the bread of life. We want to persevere. We want to receive the rewards. But... And we want to be welcomed by Jesus when he returns. That's what we do know. We get that from parables. Maybe that's what's referred to here. Uh, but don't tolerate false teaching. Yes? If you take man just very literally, I always say this, but if you take very literally, it was the nourishment and the filling that God gave you. Right. And so, if you could be, I am going to in the midst of a barren landscape, I am going to give you extra nourishment and help you get through it. But would it be physical or would it be spiritual? Well, it would end up being phys uh, uh, spiritual. Okay. <sighs> Remember those four views of interpretation? <laughs> uh, this is what we can learn, and yet be still learning. Okay? Uh, yeah. Like I said, there are different interpretations of what that stone is. But the, what we do understand is clear. Stand against false teachers. Don't compromise with false teachers. 
You know, in the 1990s, there was a document that came out. It was called Evangelicals and Catholics Together. <laughs> and at the time, I was with an organization whose leaders signed that document, but then put out a paper, position paper saying that, I put out a statement saying that we didn't have to follow it. That was his personal thing. Well, it was a statement that seemed pretty good until you got to the nuts and bolts of the gospel. And then it was like, Bleh! get that thing out of here, okay? It's that kind of subtlety where errors come in if you don't define the gospel carefully and defend it. So stay away from those kind of compromises. Today, of course, compromises are all over television and radio and internet and whatever, and we have to be aware. And we could be sucked in unaware. Because if there wasn't a reason, if, if they weren't speaking some truth, and if they weren't attractive in their presentation, they wouldn't draw you. But with Benny is a good communicator, good entertainer, if you will. It's nothing I would ever recommend, though I would recommend his nephew Costi. <laughs> okay? So we have to just be aware. He says, so this church, he says, get rid of the false teaching. Now we get to fire Tyre. And again we have, now, now he's the one, the son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze. Do you see how the imagery from Revelation 1 keeps showing up? These different attributes of Christ and his glory and his power, who he is. Thyatira um, was probably the least known of the citizens. Um, it had some commerce, it had some trade. We don't know a lot about it, but we do know one thing. Lydia. Thyatira. Who is Lydia? You know the story? She's a seller of purple. Probably or possibly the first convert in Okay. Certainly the first female. Certainly the first one mentioned, right? First death. In Acts 16, first convert in Europe. Okay, it's that city. Um, beyond that, we don't know a lot. Uh, we do know that they would have these meetings that they called guilds. <laughs> they were known for a very, very bad day here. Okay, but you had to be in those clubs if you wanted to have business in that in that city. So if you imagine what what are some of the civil uh, groups we have today? You have the Masons, you have uh, the Elks, you have what were some of the Eagles, ones? the Eagles, the Moose Lodge, and let's say those places became dens of iniquity, but you had to be in them to get contracts in the city. You can see the, the tension that would be there. Okay. So what would believers do in that kind of situation, not being in those dens of iniquity? Um, Christ is the one who searches all hearts. I, I use this one in my apologetic on the deity of Christ. Because it says in verse, 20, uh, verse 23, And I will strike your children dead, and all the churches will know, this is Jesus speaking, that I am he who searches mind and hearts. And I will give to each of you according to your work. Who can search the mind and heart of each one unless he is divine? And Jesus is the one that does that. That's actually a reference to Ezekiel that talks about the Lord, Yahweh, who searches the hearts and minds. This is why I said the more we understand the Old Testament, the more things we'll gain from the book of Revelation because there's so many references. Okay? So Jesus says, look, I see what you're doing. Now Ephesus stood against false teaching. Thyatira did not. 
and they tolerated Jezebel. Now, was there literally a teaching in Jezebel, or is Jezebel a symbol of the immoral behavior and teaching that was going on? Yeah, pretty plain at the moment, I believe. So is the whore of Babylon. Uh, but it's not a literal woman. And the idea is just this is obviously a false teacher of some sort, yeah. teaching the same false, deceitful, deadly doctrines that are leading people astray. Okay? Um, was Baal worship uh, going on for centuries? Baal worship. Well, they were. No, that's fine. It's just they were many of the pantheons of the Greeks and the Romans. Uh, yeah, the Greeks and the Romans, where they had their own plethora of gods. Did Baal worship continue on in Palestine? Probably in some degree, but those aren't the gods that are necessarily directed to in right. the seven letters. They have their whole. What's that? No, so the question is what? Is Baal worship still a problem at this time? Probably in some degree, because what was the what was what was involved in the worship of Baal? Idolatry, uh, false sacrifices, immorality, all these things. Okay. And Jesus is pictured as the blazing eyes, right? Notice it says, "Whose eyes are like flame of fire." Verse eighteen. And it's those blazing eyes of fire that look into the heart and mind of everyone and see what is truly there. You are known. You are known. You are known. Okay? He says, I'm going to judge the false teachers. I'll give everyone according to what they have done. You need to persevere as believers. So, he has authority over the nations. He's the morning star. So, the, 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 the Old Testament longs to be understood, longs to be brought out in all these different images because they all point to the power, the majesty, the glory, the grandeur, the truth of Yahweh who incarnated himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so they need to repent. These are messages that were preached today. Every one of these ones, there are things in our contemporary culture that we could look at and say, that's the spirit of Jezebel, that's the spirit of greed, that is the spirit of lack of love, that is all these different things. Um, and it should put a holy fear in our hearts. Now, if in fact Jesus is the one who sees our hearts and minds, and we are known, and we walk in his presence continuously, that should have an effect on us. That means even when I'm alone, I'm not alone. If I'm walking with the Lord, that is a wonderful thing of comfort. And I can just say there's times when I'm in my office at home, and I'm usually Monday morning is when I start doing my intense preparation for Sunday. And I'm just glad that I can be in my office alone with the Lord. I got the books open, looking at the languages, looking at it, and I, I, I feel like I'm alone and I'm not alone. I just say, Lord, help me to study with you, help me to understand your word and that comforting presence. Wherever we go, whatever we face, whatever situation we're in. But if I'm rebel, rebellious in my heart, I'm angry in my heart, if I'm focusing on things in my mind I shouldn't, then this should be a warning that he sees it. And he wants me to repent of that, not to hang on to it. Forgiveness is, confession of sin is a wonderful uh, mercy of God. It allows us to continue to receive his grace, his mercy, his kindness. But if we hang on to our sin and we try to hide it or we try to justify it, then we can't receive that grace. So the song that we sang, His mercy is more. 
Just confess your sins. He sees it already. Without faith, though, huh? you get confession, which feels great, but yeah. What? Yes, and they're they're that's the word. <laughs> they're they're neighbors and cousins. I mean, Nick, you really can't be separated under, uh, biblically. There really needs to be a change. I find a piece in that. Well, then we get to Philadelphia. I'm sorry, we are racing through this at breakneck speed. I really want you to take this chart and do your own study in the least account. Just really enjoy God's word and who Christ is in these different passages. Uh, sorry, I skipped Sardis. I'm sorry. To the angel of the church in Sardis, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Uh, to me, I see a hinting at the Trinity there. It's the seven spirits of God in the book of Ezekiel and Zechariah is a reference to the Spirit of God. If that is there, perhaps this is a reference to the Spirit of God here. Um, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Hmm. They got a good PR campaign. They look really good on social media and on their website of being a church that is alive and active. And Jesus knows about them and says, it's a lie. doing things that is honoring to the Lord and truly honoring to the Lord. Sardis was a city that was an acropolis that was, that was went up 500 meters and that was protected on three sides and thought it was impenetrable and thought that it could be protected. It was wealthy, it was proud, it was not vigilant. And therefore the church became like the city. A little bit lazy, a little bit Lack of days of gold, not watching over the teaching, not watching over the heresies. And I think the rebuke is probably the harshest for this church. It certainly is a very hard rebuke. It's very little praise for this church. Wake up, he says in verse 2. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. We don't see yet much commendation. Wake up and strengthen what remains and about to die, for I've not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it. Repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. Verse 4. Yet you have a few names in Sardis, people who have not sold their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. If the Lord calls us to wake up, do we pay attention? <laughs> and are we really listening? Could you come Joel Olson's church into Sardis? Uh, there's probably a lot of churches that, at least with some type of analysis, we would find there. I mean, Joel Osteen doesn't preach the gospel, so it, I really can't call it a church. Uh-huh. It's an entertainment gathering each week. Okay. When he actually, quote-unquote, preaches the gospel, it is usually something along the lines of, well, just pray with me. And he gives this little prayer of just saying, um, Jesus is coming to my heart. There's no sin. There's no repentance. There's no brokenness over sin. There's no recognition of guilt. There's no recognition of atonement and wrath. And I'm watching the video. It's like, he thinks that's the gospel. He doesn't know the gospel. Watch the, uh, the movie American Gospel where these different doctrines, quote-unquote, of these prosperity preachers are exposed. And it's, it's very sobering, but it's very good for us to be 
uh, equipped to engage with these type of false teachers and to warn our people. It's the American gospel, I think it's called, right? An American. Or an American gospel, okay. Well, maybe we could host something one day. It'd be worth it, because it's a point they, they, they have these false teachers in their own words. They play what they're saying for 15, 20, 30 seconds to get the full context of what they're saying and then analyze them. And these churches are huge. <coughs> huge. So he's saying you need to wake up from your lethargy. You need to listen to Jesus who will come. What does he say? Quickly, right? Will come quickly in judgment like a thief. And you will not know at what hour will come against you. But there are those, there is a remnant. And I will hold them. Okay? There are some who have not. They're dressed in white. They will not be blotted out. They will be acknowledged for God. He who confesses me before men, so shall the Son of Man confess before his Father in heaven. It's the promise that Jesus gave in the Gospels. That's what's said here. I will not blot you out. I will recognize you before my Father, before his angels. He was in your room. Church of Philadelphia. This is the youngest of the seven cities. It actually started as a Greek missionary city to spread Greek culture to the surrounding areas. It was fertile land. And in 1780, it was destroyed by an earthquake. 1780. So it took a while to build be built up. We're told that the Christians have been kicked out of the synagogues. They're being harassed by the Jews. The Jews claim to have the keys to the kingdom of heaven and they can shut the door or open it. And Jesus rebukes them by saying, He is the one who holds the keys of David. That He's the true one. That He decides what will happen in His church. And basically He is saying, even if everyone else kicks you out, I will never kick you out. We didn't face that yet. I had a few relatives that kind of turned against me when I came to Christ, but that was not being kicked out. That was a real suffering. That was just having to be called a few names. No big deal. Were they the Catholic ones? Yeah. There are believers today that are losing everything. And the, the encouraging word to them is God sees them, He knows their names. You'll never leave and don't forsake them. They'll, they will receive your spiritual reward. Um, probably the verse in, in, in this letter that has drawn the most attention is verse 10. Because you have kept my words about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell in the earth. That has brought the most attention about what this trial is, what it refers to, and its application today. Okay? Um, those, at least some, who hold to a pre-tribulation rapture want to use this verse. Okay? Um, I find that questionable, but that is one of the verses that they, they hold to. Um, what is the trial that is to come upon you? Is it to be kept from the hour of trial? What does that mean? Um, while most believers think there will be some type of increase in tribulation and suffering before the return of Christ, is this referring to that? 
and that's where the commentators go all over the place. Okay? Some that say it does, that there will be some type of deliverance of the church, say, well, this means they will be taken out of the time of trial. But that very same word is used by the Lord Jesus Christ in John 17, where it says, Jesus says, you'll be kept through the trial. Do you understand the difference? One is you're taken away from it, one is you're taken through. Okay, and both are valid interpretations of the word. So, some of it is what we bring to the text, which causes what we bring away from the text. Um, so, one commentator says this. This is William Mounts. He said, but the believer... So, the hour of trial, he says, is coming to the non-Christian world, but the believer will be kept from it, not by some previous appearance of Christ to remove the church from the world, but by spiritual protection he provides against the forces of evil. That's his interpretation. Okay? I find that compelling in light of John 16, or John 17. John, what Jesus said in John 17, and compare it to here. But... I have good friends of mine that take a different position. I say, okay, however God works it out, we'll get together around the Messianic table of the Lord. They'll say, I'm right. No, oh, sorry. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's my Well, not mad. <laughs> I can really. Remember that story between uh, Walter Martin and uh, Captain Chapel? Chuck Smith. Chuck Smith. How they would go back and forth, but they were brothers. I, I find great spiritual security in this letter that God will keep His people, whatever it means. God will keep His people. He will. He will be with them. He will. He will save them. He'll walk through with them. But He warns that there will be trials that will come. What I want us to focus on really is the first column here: Who is Christ? And when we see who Christ is, then we will look at what He promises. That should encourage us in every situation we face. He'll keep us strong so we don't compromise. He will reveal the truth so that we don't succumb to false teachers. He will strengthen us so we can stand in the midst of trial. He promises judgment against all wickedness. He, he will vindicate the righteous and He will judge the unrighteous. He says, I have all authority. I hold the keys. If He holds the keys, we're in good shape. So wherever we might put our charts and, and where the arrows go and what direction on that chart, these truths abide with us throughout life, whatever God decides to do with our lives. And we should be grounded on that and who He is. We get to Laodicea. It's a wealthy city. It's interesting. It had a medical school that would deal with eye problems. It sad in the eyes that it had some type of special uh, was advanced in the medicine for that time. Um, it was damaged by an earthquake in 60 AD, but because of the wealth that it had, it was able to quickly rebuild. So it's known as this lavish, prosperous city. But it was disobedient. I don't find any praise from the Lord for this church. It just says they're not good for anything spiritually. They're lukewarm. Now what does it mean to be lukewarm here? I think a bigger picture is they're not doing what they were intended to do. And, and the reason for that is when we understand what was going on in the geography. So I just have to read from a source that I found. We need to understand the historical situation at Laodicea. She did not have enough water in the city itself to supply her needs. So cold water was brought in through stone pipes from 
the city of Denizli, which was 10 kilometers away. Denizli was near Colossae. Though the water was cool from the springs when it left Denizli, by the time it arrived in Laodicea, it was warm, or lukewarm. It was no longer cold. Near Hierapolis, about 10 kilometers to the north, they had hot springs that were famous for their medicinal value. However, by the time that water moved over the land and arrived in Laodicea, it was no longer warm. So you had cold water that should have been cold, and hot water that should have been hot. And by the time it got to Laodicea, neither one was any good. I think the lukewarmness here is you're not fulfilling your intended purpose. Cold water has a purpose of refreshment. Warm water has a purpose of healing. And they're just muddled in the middle of all that. It's a symbol of where they are spiritually. Okay? Um, so when we say lukewarm, yes, it's, you're not accomplishing your purpose. You're, you're neither hot nor cold, Jesus said. So I, what do I have to do with you? What do we do with warm water? When you're expecting a nice, cool sip of water, it's what? Okay? He's expecting them to be faithful either in this area or in this area, and they're not. So he's not pleased with them. And he rebukes the church. He has nothing good to say about his church. And that frightens me. It's a church that had great wealth, great resources. And he has nothing positive to say. John, reflecting the Lord Jesus Christ, or this word shows that, that the Lord longs for these people to repent and become useful. Um, so I go on, it says, um, the cold water of Colossae was known to refresh the body and the soul. The hot water of Hierapolis was known for its cures of physical illness. However, the water lay out the sea was neither refreshing nor healing. This was a perfect picture of the church. The church in Laodicea was providing neither refreshment for the spiritually weary nor healing for the spiritually sick. It just wasn't any good. And we don't want to be there. So he reduced the church. So when we look at this list, and of course he's writing to churches, so he's writing to groups of believers. But of course what is true for believe, uh, uh, groups of believers can be true for the individual believer. Because all of us have to be repent. All of us have yuck in our lives we have to do. All of us have blind spots that we need to see. All of us have patterns that we need to break. Right? With the gospel. And I think these seven letters provide food for thought to really help us to grow and search not only our own spiritual condition, but where we at as the body of Christ. Remember, he praises many of these churches. So even as we ask him to look at us, what are we doing here in this local expression of the body of Christ? We must not think if he is truly the Lord of this church, that he's only going to scold, or he's only going to threaten. We should listen when we recognize there are things that he has a right to threaten us about, but it might be that there are things that he actually commends as well. Right? And he's still the Lord of the church. And he said he will build the church. And so let's lean into that. He's the Lord of the church. He will build the church. He is the vine. We are the branches. We must abide in Him. So that He's our first love. So that we stand on His truth. So that we avoid compromise. So that we're warm towards outsiders with our good works and service. Right? All these different application points that come from the seven letters. And then we're just completely dependent upon Him. And then when we get in His presence, we're going to just take all of our crowns and jewels and whatever and cast it down on us. Right? So, 
work for rewards because you want to have something to offer to the Lord one day. Let's have one back to me. So he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I just am challenged by these letters. I love these letters. I need deeper understanding of what they all mean. What they might mean for me, what they might mean for us. And I'm okay. I'm okay about still having things that I need to learn. <laughs> and this will be one. Uh, I have a feeling that if the Lord should tarry and I actually make it one day teaching through the entire Bible, this will be the last book. Because then and only then will I feel capable and competent, having looked at the full revelation of God and all the Old Testament and the promises and the prophecies, and seeing how it's all supposed to come in, that I might just start to have some understanding of it. Doesn't mean I won't teach out of it. Doesn't mean I won't use it. It just means I don't think I'll feel competent enough to stand up and preach, click, thus saith the Lord, in this book just yet. Okay? Just tell me where my heart is. <laughs> so, it's not that I don't love the book. I love the book. I'm not sure I can handle it yet. So, I'm having fun in Matthew. Me too. I like that. Buckle down because it's going to be a while. <laughs> and then there's other ones that we'll look through. And I'm willing to learn with you and study with you and we'll see this journey together. So, thank you. This is the official end now of this class. <laughs> thank you for enduring with us over the past, I don't know how many months it's been, but it's been a great journey. Pray for the elders, for myself, for those that want to teach Sunday school, what would be those appropriate classes to start offering in mid-August. Uh, I think you'll be pleased with some of the options, hopefully all the options, and then I'll kind of decide which one to go to. But we are trying to keep a keen ear to what would help our people grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Let's go off and enjoy the rest of the day. Father, to you we give thanks. I thank you that you hold all truth in your hands. And I thank you that it is good for us that you alone can handle all that truth. So Father, would you cause our hearts to be bowed before you, our minds and wills to be humbled before you, to lean upon you and trust you, to guide us into further truth. We pray, Father, for the protection of our church here in Oregon. Father, as we hear of the warnings and the dangers of these churches of the first century, Father, we pray that you be merciful to us and give us time to correct what needs to be corrected, a firmness in that which we are doing well that is honoring to you, and fill us with your joy, which will be our strength as we serve you day by day, week by week, and month by month. Father, thank you for what we celebrated today. A very tangible sign of your grace and mercy. Fill us afresh with your spirit that we would serve you well this week and enjoy you as we do as we commit ourselves to you and in Jesus' name. Thanks, everyone. Sign up if you want to come.